Friends, will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, send your spirit now, that your joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. Speak to us, O God, through your spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is a story about counterintuitive joy. For the purposes of this sermon, I want to propose to you that there's more than one kind of joy. On the one hand, we have what we might call intuitive joy, joy that shows up in the people and in the places that we expect to find it. Maybe it's a meal around a table with friends, or a hug from that certain person in our life, or a visit to that certain place, that thin place where the space between heaven and earth seems to disappear and God seems to draw close. You know, it's funny, I actually began recording my part for worship today in the backyard of Alex and Ron Binkney before being chased off by lightning and thunder. But I was there because for me, that is a place for our church of intuitive joy. It's in that yard where countless Presbyterian women's circle gatherings have happened. It's in that yard where we have come together as a congregation numerous times for summer picnics play games on the beach to feel the breeze coming off the water as we sit around table and eat together to talk as the sun sets. Intuitive joy. But I wonder if there isn't also another kind of joy, the kind of joy we can think of as being counterintuitive joy. Joy that comes to us in the least likely of people and places. Joy that sneaks up on us, in other words. You see, for me, this story that Arthur has just read for us is an example of counterintuitive joy. Think about the people, and then think about the setting, too, of this story. For starters, you have the star character being a eunuch, a man who was powerful in his own right because of his proximity to power, but who otherwise was largely considered in his time to be a religious and a social a political outcast. And then you have Philip. Philip, one of the seven chosen by the apostles to care for the poor. But Philip, a, a good Jewish man who only a few years before, prior to coming to know the good news of Jesus Christ, likely would have been compelled by his faith to overlook or even exclude this eunuch on grounds of his ethnicity, his anatomy, his ritual and purity. How unlikely that these two men are the ones who come together for this story. And then think of the place where it all happens. We're told that it unfolds on the wilderness road, the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. What I hear in that description is the fact that the temple a place of intuitive joy in that time, a place where people would have expected to encounter joy in their worship and in their sacrifice. The temple is now in the rearview mirror. They are out in the wilderness. And not only that, but they're heading in the direction of Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia is a physical place both then and now, but ancient writers would have used that word too to basically describe any land south of Egypt which for them was the end of the world. Literally, Ethiopia is meant to connote they are heading 
for the end of the world. And yet it is in this place, going in that direction with these people, that the good news is proclaimed and that a heart is opened up and that when they come across a puddle beside the side of the road, joy ensues. Sometimes joy comes counterintuitively. Sometimes it comes in people and in places and in times when we least expect it. I'm reminded of a story that uh, Michael Linval, the now retired pastor of the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City, once told about a small church, a Presbyterian church in fact, in West Beirut in 1983. Now, some of you may recall that 1983 was the year Israel marched north into Lebanon. And at the beginning of that march, most people in Lebanon did not believe Israel would come as far north as Beirut. But one church in West Beirut did think that it was possible. And more than that, they believed it was likely. And further, they believed that when Israel came, they would lay siege to the city in an attempt to starve out any remaining Palestinian fighters. And so early on in Israel's march, this church up the road in Beirut, their session gathered in order to plot out a plan, anticipating the coming starvation. And their plan they developed that night was to go out and canvas the city and purchase all the canned food items they could and stockpile them in the church. Now sure enough, a few days later, Israel arrived cut the city in two, and no people and no food could get in or out. And when that began, the session of that small church, they reconvened in order to make a plan for how to distribute the food they had gathered. And there were two proposals on the table that evening. The first was like this. We should take the food here from the church and distribute it first to the members of our congregation as they have need. And then if there is any remaining, we should distribute it to our Christian neighbors who belong to other congregations. And then if there is any remaining, we can distribute it to our Muslim neighbors. But the second proposal was essentially the exact opposite. In that proposal, the church would take its food and they would distribute it first their Muslim neighbors as they had need. And then if there was any remaining to their Christian neighbors, and then and only then, if there was any remaining, they would distribute it amongst themselves. Now the debate was intense. The meeting lasted six hours. Our elders should take note. Hour and a half, two hours, doesn't seem so bad. Six hours until an older, respected member of that session stood, and in her impatience, she yelled to the group, You hypocrites! If we do not proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in this place, in this time, then who will? Silence fell over the room. And the vote was called. And when it was taken, the decision was unanimous. A small church in West Beirut, under siege, took their food and they distributed first to their Muslim neighbors and then to their Christian neighbors. And then, and only then, 
to themselves. Lindvall was told this story by the pastor of that church, a man who pastored that congregation for 30 years. And Lindvall remembers that in his telling, the pastor concluded the story by saying, nobody starved. There was enough for all. And to this day, he said, those Christian and Muslim neighbors, they still talk about it. You see, here's the amazing thing. Philip, I think, had every reason to look the other way, right? Philip had every reason to only parse out his stockpile of good news to the people he already knew, to the people who looked like him, who spoke like him. He had every reason to hold on to that good news and not waste it on this man in a chariot who's headed for the end of the world. But the story tells us the Spirit spoke to Philip. In the story, the Spirit says something like, Philip, go stay near to that chariot. But what I think Philip really heard it saying was, Philip, if you will not proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to this man, then who will? You see, friends, I think every church existing and seeking to be faithful in this new normal needs to be asking that question. If we will not reach out to our neighbors, particularly our neighbors who look or live or believe different than us. If we will not stand up for what is right in this time of all times. If we do not expect to encounter God in the least likely of people and places. If we will not proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in our new normal, then who will? The thing that sticks with me the most about Michael Lindvall's telling of that small church in West Beirut in 1983 is what he remembers about the pastor who told him the story. Because Lindvall says, you know, I observed as he was telling me this story that the emotion which animated him in the telling of it was not regret. It wasn't fatigue, thinking about how hard that work was. The one emotion to describe that man talking about that act of sacrificial giving of his church in a time of great need. The emotion was joy. Out in the wilderness of a war. That small church stumbled upon a puddle of joy. And nobody starved. And there was enough for all. And to this day, to this day, people still talk about it. Friends, joy shows up in the most counterintuitive of places and of people. May this place and may this church be one of them. Amen.